Welcome to the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor for the Philanthropy Journal. In this episode, Robert Bush with the Arts and Science Council and Michael Marsicano with the Foundation for the Carolinas discuss their longtime friendship and what their leadership has looked like in the Charlotte area. I'm Robert Bush, and um, I'm here with my friend, Michael Marsicano, and we were just trying to remember exactly how long it's been since we met each other, and it's been multiple decades, <laughs> for sure, and we've shared a lot in our lives, friendship as well as work life, and we really never talk about that very much because we're always working on a project together, so I'm excited to just get a chance to talk to Michael, my friend, about career and what we've done and what we still hope to do. And I, too, am pleased to be talking to my friend, uh, Robert Bush, who directs the Arts and Science Council here in Charlotte. Of course, I'm over at the Foundation for the Carolinas, and I guess we're two blocks away from each other's offices. We have the unique background that we both um, have been in the same exact position. Mm -hmm. I was in the Arts Council directorship chair for 10 years, Mm -hmm. and you were in it for about six now. Six now. And so in addition to our friendship and our um, collegial relationship uh, in sister institutions, we've also had the same position. Right. So we have a lot to draw. Right. We also started in much smaller places that led us to the city. And I think that's an important part of it too, this that what we I think what we've both been able to accomplish, we honed a lot of the skill in smaller North Carolina communities that continue to do well. They both have faced challenges, just like Charlotte faces challenges, but we've been lucky to be at sort of a center of a lot of great things. In the Arts Council world, though, we started at small institutions, but you started in the big city to some extent because you were the director of development at the Mint Museum of Art when I came to right. run the Arts and Science Council. That's and I correct. remember you were consumed with the King Tut exhibit. Ramses the Great. Ramses yes, the Great, still, excuse me. Same thing. You know, similar, similar country, uh, but different pharaohs. Different, so. different pharaohs, <laughs> uh, that's right. So. But it was, uh, you took the community by storm with that exhibition. It was the talk of the town for years to come. Mm-hmm. And then you went on to run the art. I went, went on from there to run the um, Arts Council Arts Fund in Fort Wayne, Indiana and then to Raleigh, and then decided I'd had enough of the nonprofit world and I was going to be a consultant and had a firm and actually was hired. One of the first projects I had was with the Arts and Science Council with you and looking at festivals here in Charlotte and what we might do to change the, the sort of direction of what festivals were doing here. Then you left to come to the foundation, and my other big client hired me to come to the ASC. And so, Sanford from yes, Atlanta, our right. other colleague. Yes. Uh, yes, and and you were vice president for strategic planning, planning mm-hmm. at that time. And uh, I came over the foundation. It was much smaller than it is mm-hmm. today, and um, we've both had a chance to build these institutions in a in a time. Uh, that Charlotte was what I I would say baking. Right. It's it is a city that's not yet fully baked and so for us to both land here at this time to be able to have an impact you know the larger cities you can have much of an impact on right. New York or Chicago or LA and the smaller cities are not big enough 
to right. really make things happen. Mm -hmm. So we landed at just the right time in the history of this city. Mm -hmm. And it's been a lot of fun. It has been a lot of fun. And we've both of us have accomplished a lot of great things, and a lot of them together. Probably the biggest thing we did together here was the whole cultural facilities master plan and mm -hmm. the now Levine Center for the Arts and all that that entailed and the and raising endowments and partnering between the two agencies to build what is now the Greater Charlotte Cultural Trust mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. still continue to that on this day. And then we both have taken, as the city has changed and its needs have changed, now focusing on different things, but very much centered in that whole conversation of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And those in the community that not have not had the opportunities that many in this community have had. And we're both tackling that from different directions, but really with the same goal of hearing those voices and making sure they're heard in this city. Mm -hmm. Both of us are planners. Mm -hmm. But we have a piece to that planning that is not as common as I think both of us would like to see, not only in Charlotte, but in other communities. Right. And that is this notion of civic engagement. Right. That the collective wisdom of a community will come up with the best plan. Right. And that's been a hallmark of your work in planning and also in our work in planning. And in today's Charlotte, right opportunity is where the communities that we have engaged in civic dialogue have brought us. Right. And in fact, that listening to the community and responding to what the community is telling you that it needs and wants actually goes back to those very first conversations that we had when we were much younger men and meeting each other for the first times. You and Durham trying to reposition that Arts Council mm -hmm. into a new civic center with a gray and grand new building and me in Hickory in the western part of the state trying to take raise the dollars to turn an old high school into what is now an entire city block of cultural institutions. And we were doing that at the we same, same time, time and both before we wound up in Charlotte, Charlotte with right. Mint and the Arts Council. And actually I think in a lot of ways, that was one of the things that intrigued people in Charlotte about both you and I, mm -hmm. is that we came from this clear understanding of place and listening and uh, responding to what the community said. And um, someone was asking me earlier today about, well, what do, you, what do you mean that you listen? And I said, well, it's, it's not that I come in and try and say, this is what I'm going to bring to you. It is, you tell me your vision and your leads, and then I'll try and be the matchmaker or the conduit for finding the things that can make what you want to happen. I love when plans people see their words in the plan. Not my words, but their words. Another way of saying that is that as much as we would like to pride ourselves on being leaders, we are also facilitators. Right. We've both done it because we have been able to, in some cases, the same people, in some cases, people in the same group, but people who have far greater resources than either you or I have, but they have been willing to believe in the vision that we articulate back from the community to them and join us in this effort. This is, none of this work is something either one of us have done alone. It's because we have been able to build deep relationships with people who believe that we have a pulse of the community and that it's one that you need to listen to.
We are fortunate to live in a place that when plans get done, they don't sit on shelves. We actually, this community, and they've done it for a really long time, if the community does a plan and it's a, it's a reasonable, well-thought-out approach to solving an issue, regardless of what the issue is, this community will back you. And that's a huge plus. It is not a community where the plans sit on the shelves. No. And that's what's great about Charlotte. The, the wonderful thing about IRS regulations is any three people can create a nonprofit. Right. The challenge is that in Charlotte, all three people create <laughs> <Right>. nonprofits. <laughs> so we have a very robust nonprofit system. And it it's, can be challenging at times because uh, providing the money, as we both do, to support all these organizations um, is, is there, are many, there are many generous people, but there's never enough generosity for all the need. So a couple of weeks ago when you and I both spoke to an economic development group that was coming through the city, the thing that caught me at the end when people were leaving and thanking us and several members of this group said... We've never been to visit a city where they actually do what the plan says. And we can't believe y'all do exactly what the plan says. And how did you, how do you get there? And part of that is just the nature of this city. I've said for a long time, and I learned it really early when I came to Charlotte, that Charlotte loves big ideas. Yes. Sometimes they love them too much. That's correct. Uh, and they will throw money at them far beyond when the idea has lost its glitter. But that's not a bad thing. When people are passionate about an idea and seeing that idea, giving it as much of a chance as it can have to fulfill its what it could do, that's a really special place to be. It is, and I do think an element of our ability to implement the plans and not have them sit on the shelf relates back to this notion of civic engagement. You have to build an army of supporters Right. to be able to implement a plan because right. plans are take a lot of energy, they take a lot of money, they take a lot of human capital. And if you don't have the army behind you, um, it's, it's never going to happen. There was a time where that army, I think, when we first got here, could be a smaller group, mm -hmm. um, a, more, a more dominant corporate right. leadership um, period in our history. Mm -hmm. uh, but today... Uh, civic engagement is even that much more important because you can't just engage the leadership and the decision right. makers and the, those that can give money to things, whether it be government or right. corporate or philanthropic families. You have to have the citizens involved in a significant way, in part because you want them for the best answers, but also in part is the citizens of this community can make or break a plan. Uh, definitely. Um, that makes me think of something else that's sort of an interesting thread through both of our stories and here in the city is that we both were confronted by the community jumping back at us in ways. Um, I got the first jump back when you were just getting to town with a religious leader who objected to Egyptian statuary being exhibited for small children to see. Less than 10 years later, you were confronted with also religious leaders objecting, and political leaders. Yes. I didn't have the political leaders objecting, but you had the political leaders objecting to the production of a theatrical piece that sort of put the flag in the dirt here that we were going to be a different kind of city than mm -hmm. what people thought we were. So this doesn't happen without getting bruised. 
It doesn't <laughs> happen without getting bruised at, at all because we've had to take really tough positions. They were positions of right versus mm-hmm. wrong, and we knew it was right to right. do, but that doesn't mean that everybody accepts our views of what was right, right. to do. Um, those were important watersheds in our community because, particularly with the play, it was a, a discussion of whether we were going to be a community of tolerance mm-hmm. or whether we were going to not be. Right. And the play deals openly with sexual orientation, homosexuality, religious right confrontation against sexual orientation. And at that time, I think it was a battle, frankly, in my view, for the soul of our city. Right. And it was very challenging. A lot of money was cut by government at the time because there was a conservative government right. in place. But interestingly enough, the citizens rallied. Right. They threw those folks out of office and the money came back more than what was taken away. Right. So it was a big win. But I don't know that we, f- I didn't feel that it would be a win. I know it was a moral win for me, right. but I didn't feel personally, but I didn't feel that it was a win in the moment while it was happening. It was only oh. two years later when it all came together and I realized that the community was absolutely the tolerant community I thought it was. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was, these are tough things. They were tough because we both have had that same job, the same position that I'm in now. There is this confusion in the community about exactly what we control. They think we control everything. So I actually had a person thank me for running the lottery for the Hamilton tickets. And I was like, I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> but this person had won front row seats for $10 a piece to see Hamilton. And I was like, well, I have nothing to do. But they, but a lot of people think that we decide every concert, every play, you went through this, every exhibition, every everything is this, you know, that the person who sits in my chair now makes those decisions. And I will assure you we have zero and you know that we had zero control over any of that. But you, it also um, it puts you in an interesting position with uh, the community because they think you do. And so you have to help them understand that you're merely looking out for the bigger whole. And it also ca- creates tension with the recipients of the dollars because they don't understand that you can't play favorites. Well, this is so true. I, 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 you know, uh, we get, we actually get the credit for things we don't do. We get the credit for things, things we do. We yes. do. <laughs> you know. What's interesting, when in terms of both of us being grant makers, is. We're both very volunteer-driven. I do not tell my board where to place the money that goes to nonprofit organizations in this community. So many people think I do. They are in disbelief that I don't, like a puppeteer, (laughs) uh, if that's the correct uh, word, but it's it's a community process. Well, you know, it's interesting. That's something that we're working on. It's probably one, it may be one of the last things I accomplish before my time is done this next spring. But we're going to, we're working right now to be able to open the operating panels now that we use all outside the community evaluators. So there's no sort of 
they don't people don't know who these people are they just know that they're expertise in these different areas we're going to open the panel so that the applicants can actually hear the panel discuss their application and it not be filtered through the staff of the Arts and Science oh, Council. I think that's a great And decision. we think that that is a huge step of transparency of they need to hear what others are saying. Not this. It's not, like you say, it's not you being the puppet master. It's not me being the puppet master. I don't even have a vote. Most of the time I don't even have a voice in the room. But it's the process of making sure that people are evaluating what they're saying they're going to do and they hear from the evaluators of this I don't, This makes perfect sense or I have real questions about what this means or whatever the grant making needs are. And that's, I think, a gift back to the community of opening that door and letting them see the process work. It's increasing the transparency right. of it, which I think both of us have stood for mm -hmm. over, over, over time. And um, if people can see the fairness in the processes, mm -hmm. they can live with the results. Right. If they can't see the fairness in the process, right. it's hard to live with the results right. because they imagine all sorts of things that may or may not be true. Right. Now, there are times that I wish I did have the, the fund that I could just say, we're going to fund that. But I don't get that. And, you, you know, that's a, that just comes with the territories. So. And, and, of course, in private foundations, neither of which right. do we run, uh -huh. um, you know, the professional staff members typically do make those decisions. Right. And Arts Council grant making and Community Foundation grant making are less visible in many ways than the Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller, right. the Ford Foundation, where most of those big foundations, it is the staff right. that do make the decisions. And so that's what people more commonly know this very volunteer decision-making process um, is not as uh, commonly known to most people. And so they, they kind of place on us right. their views of other institutions and how they work. Well, you know, that's interesting, that concept of how the, the volunteers and the board are so much a part of both of our lives. And, of course, you when you were at ASC, it was a time of a very large board. I think it was 50 four or six when you were when you left one of the things that i've been able to accomplish is bringing it down to 26 which has been a big shift but there was a reason that those 50 people plus were at that board level for you both on the fundraising side as well as the government investment side and while we shrank our board to 26 we added over 100 people in advisory groups around the county to make sure our ear was close to the ground always and listening and learning and adapting because we it's we're to a point with the growth of this cultural community that we can't wait 10 years to do a plan we have to constantly be changing and adapting to the needs of this community because it's moving so quickly um and those that listening to lots of voices many times they don't always agree with you but making sure they're heard and they do influence the direction that we take as an institution. I mean, what y'all have done with opportunity is specifically in that line. It's not just that we know Charlotte loves to be number one, and it wasn't just that Charlotte was on number 50 out of 50. It was your board understood that there was actually a problem to be solved. Right. And like you, on spreading the volunteer influences, I think people have a view that since boards are fiduciaries, 
they too are controlling everything. And technically speaking, they have the legal authority. But having these advisory boards and these advisory councils only increase the collective wisdom, increase the knowledge base that we have to draw on. When I first got here at the foundation, we went through a similar change of the board. It wasn't a change in size. It was a change in who was on it. We are a regional foundation serving 13 counties. At the time, we had a board of 21. 20 of them lived in Charlotte, and one lived in the region. Mm -hmm. It was pretty hard to hold our head up high to say that we were a regional foundation if 20, 20, 20 of 21 people were all from Charlotte. Mm-hmm. So we diversified the board geographically as well as ethnically and racially and mm-hmm. age. And it's much more um, of a robust experience because we have a greater view at the table of what the people in the region are thinking. Well, you know, that's interesting because, and I still use this as when I speak about the role that ASC has played in cultural planning. I still, going back to 74 in that plan and in the 91 plan, one of the things I always highlight is that the community said, more public money, you've got to look more like the community, and that you led that board through actually firing themselves and reconstituting themselves so they didn't all live in two zip codes. They actually reflected the population of this community. That principle remains a principle now that's been almost 20 years Mm -hmm. and it's still a principle of how the board of ASC is constructed and that also prompted a lot of work around diversification of boards and staffing groups your team did a great job it wasn't easy I've heard some of the horror stories (laughs) and by the time I got to ASC we had been there two or three years we saw this huge dramatic change in the look and the makeup of boards and staffs and leadership, and we claimed victory. And within three years, we were back to everybody living in two zip codes mm-hmm. and not, and they're all looking like each other. And so we now refer to that as we took our foot off the gas too quickly. And so that whole concept of Every voice at the table, which you started with ASC, continues here at the foundation, continues here at ASC, and is now a much broader part of the conversation around this whole opportunity work. And because of our influence with other institutions, I think it's become a best practice for the nonprofit sector. And, And, you know, the opportunity work is just so indicative of all this. The last thing you want to do is to create a plan that is to benefit a group of individuals, in this case, people who are, who are wanting to improve their economic mobility, their economic opportunities, to rise in the income um, uh, streams, uh, to not have their voices at the table and to have a top-down approach um, wouldn't work and wouldn't be accepted. Right. I remember when we started doing some of the related school reform work in the West Charlotte area, when we had a community forum, and uh, this is a predominantly African-American low-income community, and after we got done with that forum, uh, a fairly elderly African-American woman stood up and said, this is the first time anyone is not, this is the first time anyone has 
come into this community and not try to fix me, but instead let me talk about how they could help me improve my, my situation in life. Right. And that was so telling about past practices of other leaders, mm -hmm. um, different time, different place, and why it's so necessary, particularly with the opportunity work, right. to, to, to work in this fashion. Right. And that's what we've learned in this work where we've gone out into these underserved areas of the community with new approaches to delivering cultural services to them. And that the people that are fearful of the word culture or the word art are those that live in that world in these nice, big, shiny buildings. <laughs> If you go out and they will say, oh, you can't ask these people about culture. They won't know what you're talking about. And what we have found is you go into those neighborhoods and you ask them about their cultural, what their cultural life wants to be and who they, what they need help with doing. And they list the same things that they want for themselves and their children that people from any other neighborhood in the city, the wealthiest neighborhoods would say, this is what I want for myself and my children. Mm -hmm. They clearly, they're not afraid of the word culture. In fact, they embrace the word, the word culture. But I also think that another part of this is that both you and I have not isolated our work to just the discipline that we work in, whether it's arts or the community foundation. We are very, both very adept at making sure everyone has a seat at the table we need the business community, we need the government community, we need the education community, we need the university community, we need the neighborhood, we need this very broad base of input to get the work done. And that's part of building the coalition that then becomes the champions who become the people that drive the implementation of all of this. And that just seems to come natural to us that that's part of how we do business. Anybody who thinks they have a not a monopoly on knowledge <laughs> right, right. or on answers. Uh -huh. If if by now with the complexities of society they haven't figured out that no one has the monopoly on the answers and 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 the knowledge to get us there, they're just tone deaf. And and it's interesting because you know we've both been involved with colleges and universities over the years, right. uh, taught classes, mm -hmm. um, and been both been to graduate right. school. And what we know today is the silos, academic silos, are being broken down because knowledge and answers are not right. discipline-based. You have to have a grounding in discipline, but they're really interdisciplinary-based. And all of the knowledge is moving in education to interdisciplinary. Why would we think that in our communities things shouldn't right. be equally as interdisciplinary? Right. But it's, it's also interesting to look back, you know, I did not, this is not the path that I had planned. I started out, you know, undergraduate Spanish and English with the dream of being a teacher and then being a principal and then being a superintendent. And then I was young enough and ego driven enough to think that I could do a job. And then I got hired to be an arts council, arts administrator. And I have, that's been a great ride ever since. You have a similar path that's different that didn't necessarily play that you were going to be here. No, I went to undergraduate Duke and graduate school, and I pursued a degree that would set me up to be a professor at a college or university, and that's what I thought I was going to do. Mm -hmm. But I was having so much fun playing my horn right. and singing in choirs and so forth that this opportunity to run the Arts Council just off of campus in Durham presented itself, and it seemed like a really good idea, and, and I was lucky to get the job. And what's interesting about that is 
I worry so much about young people today who are trying so hard to plan everything about their careers and their lives when I find it is the case in most people, unless you're going to be a rocket scientist right. or a, a physician or an engineer, most people don't wind up doing what they thought they were going to do. And it never occurred to me after I entered the arts that I would wind up running a foundation. So that was also opportunistic, an opportunity that presented itself. And um, it seemed like a great one, and it, and it has been. So we've had a pretty good ride, both of us. We, we've had a great ride, and, and one of us is close to retirement, and right. the other one is not far behind. <laughs> well, so it kind of makes this conversation um, a bit of nostalgia, yeah. um, but also reflections on um, what we found that worked. And right. maybe ben others who are coming behind us can, can benefit from some of that wisdom. I hope it's wisdom. We can only hope. So at least we've been honest. I think that's the most important thing. And um, well, I, I have found over the years that intellectual honesty is probably one of the most important traits a leader can have. Um, um, and you, you just have to be intellectually honest with yourself about what you're facing and what's going on. Um, I've also found uh, over the years that when people think of us as these influencers, and this harkens back to what we were talking about before about um, collective wisdom and civic engagement, the more influence I, I enable mm -hmm. to have happen, the irony in the goodwill nonprofit sector is the more influential you become. Right. I mean, it, it, giving things away, and I don't mean physical things right. or money, I mean giving influence away, um, only makes you have the ability to be more influential. Uh, it may or may not be that way in corporate world or government world, but I found that to be true in our professions. Well, it's interesting too, as you know, as I have, after I've announced that I'm retiring and uh, people are quizzing me about what are you going to do, what are you going to do, and I said that the only thing I've decided is for the first six months, nothing, and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do. What intrigues me is that the opportunity to share my skill in different areas. That it's not, you know, I want to give my successor the space to do their job the way they see it needs to be done, but I'm not leaving this place that we've both grown to love. And so I'm gonna be out there available to be on a task force, to be a listener, to go in and try and figure out a problem in different areas of the community. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because <laughs> I, I have a few more years uh, professionally I'm right and I'm going to be calling because <laughs> I would miss the collegalship that we've had. So I'm pleased to know that in the in perhaps a volunteer consultancy capacity, mm -hmm. you're still out there to work together. Michael, it's been great. Thank you for taking a little time to have this conversation. Uh, Robert, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I always do. And it's actually interesting to do it in a more formal right. um, place with a microphone in front of us. <laughs> I don't know the conversation would have been any different if the microphone so. hadn't been there. Right. It's a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Nonprofit Experience. T&E is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear. Our graduate editor is Kristen Gullihue. Graduate assistant editor is David Mueller, and our communications assistant is Haley Jones. This episode was produced by David Mueller, who also wrote our theme music. For more information on this and other episodes, visit us at philanthropyjournal.org. 
Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Experience and subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google+.